0: Hey, friends. Dave here on behalf of the Hallway Conversations crew. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Justin Bailey about his new book, Interpreting Your World, Five Lenses for Engaging Theology and Culture. If you haven't listened to our last episode yet, we would recommend starting there because we're jumping right into the middle of a conversation in this episode. While this isn't a teaching book per se, it has plenty of wisdom for Christian educators and lots of encouraging ideas for how to help children and young people make sense of the complex cultural setting we find ourselves living in. We hope you'll find Justin's wisdom on discerning issues of faith and culture, both challenging and encouraging. We put a link in the show notes for this episode if you're interested in ordering a copy of the book for yourself. We highly recommend it. Okay, without further ado, part two of our conversation with Dr. Justin Bailey. Welcome to Hallway Conversations. We're a trio of educators who have plenty of questions about teaching and learning and school culture, and we believe in the value of reflection and collaboration as we seek to keep growing as teachers. This podcast is our place for thinking out loud together about issues in education and why they might matter to Christian educators. Welcome to the conversation. Justin, in chapter three, I
1: found myself thinking about this line that you, ha- you had. I found it compelling, and it, it gets a little bit, I, I found myself thinking about as you were talking about um, creating safe space, or someone I read talked about creating brave space for where people can speak bravely. But, but you say, doing the right thing is really the sophisticated management of our public reputation, a way we win honor and avoid shame from the groups in which we seek to belong. Righteousness as reputation management. I found that really powerful. Per- personally, as a parent, as, as a teacher, what would you say to Christian parents, teachers? Um, how do we avoid raising, um, the term you use is slacktivists. How do we avoid raising slacktivists who are more intrigued with brand management, who become <laughs> people to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God? How do we empower students to live for the applause of heaven, as you say? And I know that's a huge question, but I'm just wondering: is there, as we as we have these students in our classroom, we have K to 12 listeners, we have parents who are all wondering, like, how do we empower these students um, to to live this way and not just be concerned with brand management? And I ask the question as a 50 year old because I know yeah. I can be concerned about brand management, yeah. even in a classroom. I'm conscious of that? Am am I going to say something that might hurt my brand? So, so to speak.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And if you figure it out, let me know. (laughs) Um, because it is the question in a world where we are all sort of managing our brands all the time, you know, where we are so focused on how do I look? What do people think of me and encouraged all the more, you know, to think that way. Um, there's a phrase that I like, um, in Latin, well, it's in the translation is to be rather than to appear. And I think we are encouraged to appear and who cares if you actually are the thing Mm -hmm. that you appear to be. Um, And that's a personal struggle as well. Um, And so I think a few things um, with that is there is a place, I think, for cultivating things like obscurity, secrecy, servanthood that no one knows about. You know, those are the things where, why am I doing this? I'm not, you know, because it's easy to, do things and to teach people to do things because that's how you signal to your tribe that you belong, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I am being a good member of this community. I am just like everybody, you know, just like everybody else. Um, And especially in more homogenous communities, uh, you know, you talk about this idea of virtue signaling where you do something primarily to say, I'm a good person uh, rather than because you actually care about, um, you know, substantively the thing. So that's why a lot of times we teach people, well, if you just kind of have the right profile, then you're okay rather than actually being engaged with with justice or um, that sort of work. And so I think a big part of what we want to try to do is to cultivate these more quiet, humble virtues of obscurity, secrecy, servanthood, hmm. um, where um, my sense of my righteousness is not always displayed for everyone. So I go on a, a mission or service trip and I don't primarily go to take pictures that I can show to every you know everybody else of all the things I'm doing or you know what, whatever else it is uh, that there are things that you do that you that no one else knows about you know and um, and you do that because ultimately you live your life before the Lord right and again that's easier said than done but I think that that's part of sort of our very image focused culture to teach people to have integrity or to have integrity, to be the same person everywhere, it means that we have to cultivate disciplines of secrecy and obscurity and um, servanthood that is not always public, always, you know, putting myself out there to to show that I am a good person. You know, I'm a good member of this community.
3: Which is very countercultural.
2: For sure. Yeah. yeah. Wildly.
1: Yes.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. In what way, Abby? Sorry, can you just talk about that for a minute?
3: Well, I think about the the students that we teach who have always had a social media,
1: yeah, world. Yeah,
3: they, right. They
0: haven't known life without a digital footprint. Their parents mm-hmm. were taking photos of them from toddlerhood and posting them. Online, and I'm guilty right? too,
3: right? With oh, yeah, yeah. with yeah. my own kids, and so I'm thinking about how we model that, and even in our own lives and our own social media use, mm-hmm. am I doing this for the photo? Yeah. Are we? How how am I interacting with that? How does that impact this experience? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great questions,
1: Justin. When I was reading chapter four, you tell this wonderful story about Bill Murray coming across a painting. So a bit of a different question here. Um, I found that a wonderful story. Actually, I'd never heard that story, um, and you 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 link that to asking your students in your class. Um, about a piece of popular culture that really matters to mm-hmm. them. And I can imagine the variety of answers there and one way for you to actually get to know them about. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. but my question so a little bit different, and maybe just to share a, a bit about yourself. What, what's a piece of popular culture that really matters to you, Justin? How would you Ooh. answer the I question? I love this question. Yeah. How would you ask answer the question you ask your students?
2: Well, and I always do after they all go or sometimes before because I want them to see me model talking about something because they're always afraid that as a professor, I'm not going to handle the things they love with care. I think, Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, or that, you know, I think their experience a lot of times has been the only reason we talk about pop culture is to say how wrong it is, you Mm. know, and they actually know how to do that. They've been trained to do that. They can easily say, Oh, these are all the things wrong with it, you know, but that doesn't stop them from consuming it. You know, it, Mm. it still plays a really important role in their life. So the thing I always share with them is the television show, the office, um, so good. And, uh, you know, I've so m- terrible. Makes I've, me so uncomfortable. I've done so many laps through the, the seasons, especially the earlier seasons of The Office. And I think it has, you know, I, I often go to sleep to The Office, you know. Um, it's this familiar thing, you know. I that, have so many questions right that, now. Yeah. That, like, puts, I get this. You know, kind of kind of allows yeah. my, I have trouble sleeping, so it kind of helps my mind wind down a little bit. Um, and so in that sense, you know, you think about a piece of pop culture that you're literally is putting you, to, you know, like laying you down to rest. You know, that's a pretty important um, mm. sort of, I guess, liturgy um, that I have. And I think there's a few reasons why I really like the office. I mean, it's just really funny. Um, so I think that's the sense, uh, one, one sense, I just on a purely aesthetic level, it's very well done. And it it brings me a lot of delight i think i also really um feel like i have an inner michael scott um, (laughs) you know a person a part of me that just wants you know michael scott just wants people to love him you know what i mean and he is um too unsophisticated to hide it the way that i can hide it you Mm. know Mm -hmm. and so i think that it helps me not take myself so seriously in a sense to think of myself as, I'm, I'm just Michael Scott wanting people to applaud, yeah. you know, applaud as I walk in and laugh as I walk yeah. away. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think that, that that's, and then one other piece is just, it's about just ordinary life. It's, you know, that's where the drama is. It's in the ordinary interactions mm-hmm. that you have with people um, that beauty is found. And I think the attention to the ordinary and the attention to, I think even the inner life, you know, all of the different kind of confessional times where they interview people that people are, I mean, I'm thinking stupid things like that all the time too. It's just, they gave them a camera and let them right. say it, you know what I mean? And I think all of
0: us are put them in front you know, of a microphone. Yeah, hey, exactly. You know? <laughs> and it's maybe a
2: little bit funnier than my everyday <laughs> right. life. But if you knew all the things I think about, you would be like, wow, that guy's an idiot. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it just helps me um, not take myself so seriously in a sense. Uh, and so, yeah. In that sense, it has been really important to me. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's interesting. When I was I was getting to know you, Justin, and I heard about your passion for the office. I remember I said to you one time, um, you know, like what are the what are the best episodes? And like in less than thirty seconds, I got a text back that basically the had top seventy five episodes. <laughs> yeah. episodes. Have of you the watched office. it? I've watched some of it, but I, and I said this to Justin, I can hardly. Watch it, and yet I watch it partly because it helps me understand you. Yeah. Better. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that's wow. like me
2: listening to Dashboard Confessional yeah. for my students. You're like right. yeah. watching yeah. The yeah. Office yeah. to relate yeah. to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. I get that secondhand embarrassment so bad when I watch the The Office. Though, right? Yeah. Like I can't hardly. I'm crawled out of my own. Skin. There are some but episodes I cannot yeah. watch. Right, yeah. Yeah. Scott's. There's talks. so many good I lines though, yeah. like
3: the. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I agree. yeah.
0: So just, I have a question for you. Um, we were talking at the beginning, like who this book is written for. Do you have people in mind that you say these people should just not even pick up this book? Who should not read this book?
1: Wow. Everyone should read this book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great question. I mean, I don't know. I, I have always been wary of people whose primary metaphor for engaging culture is culture war.
0: Mm.
1: Um,
2: And I much prefer the metaphor of culture care. Um, So as has been pointed out to me, there are thorns and thistles which we resist, but the vocation of gardening precedes the resistance of thorns and thistles. Hmm. And so care ought to be the primary umbrella within which any sort of war or resistance or battling is situated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that, people who are very interested in culture war. And what I mean by that is especially people who need to win and need to stay in power. Um, And um, I think those people will maybe not Mm -hmm. appreciate this book uh, so much. Maybe they will. Uh, But I think that it's a different sort of approach to that. Uh, Because a big point of what I'm trying to do is to say, because the world belongs to God, we can fail. Our, we can offer up our work and fail, and allow it to die. Allow our, what, everything we do to be forgotten, um, and perhaps God will take it up and weave it into His tapestry in ways that we do not expect. So we don't have to be in charge of our legacy. We don't have to be in charge of making a mark. We don't have to be in charge of winning. You know, mm. um, and and so that gives us again just all this freedom to experiment and create beautiful things and try things that may fail and fall on their faces. And um, and it's okay. Most of what all of us do will be forgotten. That is the nature of culture. It's ephemeral. Um, and yet, you know, John Donne has this wonderful uh, line that I end the book with where he says, you know, God takes it up and, and translates it into a better language. Um, and so this idea that God would take up the work of our hands um, and make it, into something more than we could do. That is our hope, right? It's yeah. not that we have to yeah, figure beautiful. it all out, mm-hmm. you know? And I think as teachers too, I mean, you could all, you could talk about the experiences that you have, uh, both when you were being mentored by other teachers, as well as being a teacher is that you do things and you do your best. And sometimes you fail and yet God takes it up and does things with it that you did not anticipate. And so I think that, um, I'm, allergic a little bit to culture war metaphors because it is really insisting on controlling the outcome, mm. controlling where it goes. Whereas culture care, again, yeah, when you garden, there are things to resist and things to uproot, but that's not the main thing you're trying to do. You're trying to actively plant beautiful things uh, that are life-giving. And I think that's the way that we need to think about um, culture.
1: Makes me think about that. Okay. So to think about Christian education, even that way, right? Mm-hmm. Is how to create, to plant... Beautiful things. What does it mean to do beautiful work within the classroom, outside yeah. of the classroom? I, I was really drawn to even your phrase "organic servanthood." How do we, how do we, yeah, create that space for um, students to engage in organic servanthood? Can you just talk a little bit more about that, about those words, Justin?
2: Yeah. Uh, so organic comes from uh, Antonia Gramsci, and uh, he talked about being organic intellectuals which is an intellectual that doesn't sort of do his work from the ivory tower, but on the street among mm. the people. So that's one sense of organic. Um, and then servanthood is, servanthood is the primary um, distinctive practice of the ethical dimension. What we're really trying to do is to serve, not to rule. And I pulled up this part where I'm talking about the Lord of the Rings, so I had to put that in here somewhere. (laughs) Um, Of course you did. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) where Gandalf is talking about, you know, he doesn't want the ring. He doesn't want the power to rule over other people. Uh, And he says, uh, the rule of no realm is mine, but Mm -hmm. all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail uh, of my task Though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come, for I also am a steward. And so he sees his vocation not even as one that needs to win, uh, but one that needs to make space for things that can grow fair and bear flower and bear fruit and things to come and that's a different understanding of power, isn't it? It's the power of a servant. It's the power of a steward, mm. the power of a gardener, rather than of, a, of a, a lord and master that wants to control where everything goes. Um, so again, it's, it's a different metaphor, um, but it seems to me like the way that we exercise power, and we have to acknowledge the fact that all of us exercise power, um, there is a power differential between us and our students, there ought to be. Um, and so what do we do with that power? Well, Christian faith... Com- radically reorient the way that we use power. Mm. Uh, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, right? And so servanthood is this matter of making other people successful. Um, And so I think that that's the way we think about, okay, what is the power differential here how do I have power, and what am I doing with that power in order to make space for things to flower and bear fruit mm-hmm. for the days to come? And if I can do that, I will not have failed.
3: Yeah, mm, that's beautiful. So much of what you are talking about is so applicable in a classroom mm-hmm. environment, yeah. which is why I think it's a great. We asked who should read it, right? I think it's a great read for teachers. Agreed. For that reason, yep. as we think about, as David Smith would say, reimagining our practice. Yeah,
1: I also found myself, so I grew up in a, in a very functional home where aesthetics was, I want to say downplayed or it wasn't paid attention to. And that's not even a criticism. It was just that was the nature of my upbringing. And, and I know aesthetics is really important to you, Justin. You talk about this a bit in, in, in chapter five. And as I was reading through chapter five, I found myself thinking about how schools are designed, how we set mm. up our classrooms. Um, mm. Should beauty matter? in our classroom should beauty matter and how we design a brand new school and um so I guess my question is is why it's a big question but why should aesthetics matter even in in a classroom or, or in our home um I'm all I'm always struck and I found myself again thinking about this when I would drive around with my dad he'd always point at Mount Baker in the Pacific Northwest He look at Mount Baker look at Mount Baker mm-hmm. look at Mount Baker he would wherever we were driving look at Mount Baker look how beautiful it is and Um, I'm just wondering what what might aesthetics have to do with the classroom or or even school design?
2: Wow, what a great question. Um, We should do a whole podcast on that, I think. Mm. Um, Why does beauty matter? Well, I mean, first of all, um, I think one of the best things we can get students to ask is what does it mean to live a beautiful life? Mm. Um, A beautiful life is a life that is compelling, coherent. There's a level of excellence there's a level of delight. And so if you're trying to get students to ask, well, what does it mean to live a beautiful life? Uh, then you also have to think of the way the beauty is nourished in their imagination. And I always say, you know, a lot of us have grown up in contexts that are a little bit impoverished, especially visually. Um, in the reformed tradition, we do really good with music, uh, not as much with visual art or dance, uh, things like that. And so all of us have been formed imaginatively in ways that, we have strengths and then we also have deficits, and so I think that's one of the things that we can think about. Or what are the what are the deficits? What are the strengths that we have? How can we lean into our students' aesthetic formation? And, and what are the ways that we need to supplement uh, what's what's missing there? And then the other thing I would say is the thing. By the way, chapter five is my favorite chapter in the book. If I can say that about my <laughs> own my own work, it's my favorite chapter in the book. It's the last lens that I use, and in some ways, I feel like it's the most important lens. Uh, because aesthetics has to do with things that we do just for the heaven of it,
0: mm-hmm.
2: just for the delight Beautiful. and the pure mm-hmm. joy that we find in it. And you have to have things in your classroom that allow you just to play uh, and, and to have delight. Uh, in fact, the vision of the New Jerusalem in Zechariah is a vision of kids playing in the streets. That's part of the vision of the kingdom is that it, ha- it has to be a place where kids can play um, because play is people, little image bearers doing things just for the heaven of it, mm-hmm. just for the pure joy that they find in it. And if everything is functional, if everything is just like, well, oh, we're doing this for some some particular purpose or particular reason, then we're not really allowing the imagination to fully exercise itself, because what the imagination is trying to do is to tease out all the possibilities, uh, which is what God has called us to do, is to unfold the potentialities and possibilities of creation, and, um, and so there has to, like, when I think about just aesthetic formation, it's not just about, you know, maybe putting art in the classroom or thinking about the way that the classroom is designed, but what are the ways that you design the day, design the hour so that there is some sort of joy or delight, mm-hmm. you know, or, or play, um, that people get to do things just because it's, it's delightful. You know, mm-hmm. there's a phrase from Marilynne Robinson, uh, learning something because of the unaccountable joy of learning it. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, just the joy of learning things, you know, mm-hmm. not just because it has some sort of pragmatic purpose, but because it feels unaccountably good
1: to know, mm. you know. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful. That that reminds me, one of my favorite things when I was an elementary school principal was just walking around at recess and watching these students play And make up rules and scream and even solve conflict and be creative and, and yeah, use their imagination in ways that you're like, how did you think of that game? And it was just simply because there was no rules. They could, they could just do it. And, and I think we know that as parents, right. Of Mm. watching our, there's something beautiful about watching our kids play and play should matter in our schools. And, Mm -hmm. um, we can take ourselves pretty seriously sometimes in in Mm -hmm. our classrooms. And maybe that's
0: a good call reminder for, for educators, for the school leaders to, to embrace playfulness themselves, right? That's, that's part of the beauty of what we get to do in, in all these things.
3: And in, and in staff rooms and in meetings and in professional development. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. We have a rule on
2: Sundays, uh, until five o'clock you're not allowed to be on any screens and it's hard for all of us and not just <laughs> for the kids but my kids always make something you know yeah. they always they my son made this like mandalorian armor out of cardboard one day you know my daughter makes games they they do all sorts of things that's why i started asking what did you make today you know and that's that's i think a good question for all of us what did, what did you make today you know um yeah the uh, Andy Crouch talks about the difference between devices and instruments and we need yeah. to move from devices mm-hmm. to instruments. Mm-hmm. And like, I made music, you know, I played the piano or I, yeah. you know, uh, why? Well, be, just for the heaven of it, you yeah. know, just because mm-hmm. it was, it brought me joy.
1: You right. know? Justin, one last question. Um, this idea of interpreting our world, um, what encouragement, um, we have teachers w- who are going to be starting in their classrooms this week next or you know, that are, are beginning their school years. What encouragement or words of advice or what could you say to them about, about how to help students, help how to help young people interpret the world in which they're mm-hmm. living?
2: Yeah, um, we need Christian education because we need generative Christian interpretation of the world. Uh, as human beings, we are interpreting creatures, right? We can't help but interpret the world. And your interpretation is not just what you think about the world, it's the way you live in the world. So your interpret the original title for this book, my title was Your Interpretation is Your Life uh, because I felt like it kind of captured that sense of, it's mm-hmm. not just about thinking all the right things about culture or faith, but my interpretation of scripture is the way I live out scripture, right? My interpretation of culture is what I do with it, you know? And, um, and so there's the, just that sense of all of us are natural interpreters and Christian educators have this amazing privilege to get to teach students to interpret the world Christianly, uh, to see the world through the lens of creation and fall and redemption of a world that is loved by God, has not been abandoned by the Creator, which means that we don't have to be anxious, right? We can, like I said before, we can we can stay in uncomfortable situations uh, and, and live a life of love because uh, the world has not been abandoned by God. But God loves the world. God is redeeming the world for good. Uh, and we get to... To partner with God and participate in this beautiful thing that God is doing uh, which is not always an easy thing but it is a beautiful thing uh, that God is doing and so that would be my encouragement is just to to recognize that you are already an interpreter to recognize the uh, gift that you have to get to teach Christian interpretation of things uh, and then to not be afraid uh, because uh, the world is securely held by a the good lord uh, who
1: loves it and who's redeeming it. Mm. Justin, we just want to say thanks for being with us here Absolutely. today. We're, we're going to put a link in the show notes yeah. where um, people can purchase your book. We just want to say that this is a book written for Christian educators. This I know it's really that, encouraging
3: for me yeah. as we start the year. Yeah, sure. yeah it's <laughs> so really <thank> <laughs> encouraging. And so
1: we, we encourage our readers that this, this is a book, you know, you talked about it being, you know, the audience about university students. I'm thinking about an audience of Christian educators, mm-hmm. anybody who's trying to discern what it means to teach Christianly, whether they're in a, mm-hmm. a faith-based school or a public school. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say thanks for, thanks for writing it. Um, and just thanks for sharing a, l- a little bit about, about the book. Friends, we know that your time is valuable. We want to thank you for joining us today for another Hallway Conversation. Whether it is this day, this week, this month, or as you begin your school year, we hope the Lord gives you what you stand in need of to, to start well. And we want to send you from here with this blessing. So to our listeners, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face. The rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you have a good week.
0: This podcast was literally dreamed up during one of our actual Hallway Conversations. Our music is by Ethan Mulder. Hallway Conversations is created and produced by Matt Beemers, Abby DeGroat, and Dave Mulder. Hey, we have a favor to ask of you. Would you be willing to rate this podcast or write a review in your podcast app? Or if you found this conversation interesting or helpful, would you consider sharing it on your social media? Those things really do help podcasters out, and we would be so, so grateful. Thanks for listening, friends. Awesome. So good. Good. Yeah, it was really good. It's great, guys.